Well, we are in Psalm 119, starting in verse 129. And as we've been working our way through Psalm 119, there are many things that we are seeing about the Word of God and how it impacts us and how it should impact us. We recognize the fact that we cannot live up to God's righteous standard apart from what He is doing in our lives and in our midst. As we've studied, I'd just like to ask you the question, how do you see the Word of God? When we see the wonder of God's word and the blessings God gives to those who are obedient servants of his word, it should make us fall on our knees in dependence upon God and his gracious dealings with us in treating us as sons, even though we don't deserve even to be his servants, as Luke pointed out last week. There are blessings of servanthood, but... God doesn't just keep us as servants. When we come to Him, He welcomes us as sons. That's such a tremendous, tremendous blessing. I was able to do a little more reading this week. Uh, I hope it doesn't make the sermon too long. I keep trying to decide what what is it I'm supposed to cut out. But uh, reading the uh, Wearsby Bible Commentary, Warren Wearsby introduces this particular section by saying, this section begins with the wonder of God's word and ends with the weeping of the writer because of the arrogant, because the arrogant disobey the word. Just as love and hate verses 127 and 128 from last week, and the joy and affliction can exist in the same heart, so can awe and anguish. And that's what we're looking at this week, the awe that we should be in awe of the Word of God, and and yet it can bring us to the point of anguish. In fact, when we see the beauty and wonder of Scripture, we also begin to understand the ugliness of sin and the cheapness of what the world has to offer. This section describes a spiritual chain reaction in the life of the psalmist, one that can occur in our lives if we ponder the wonder of God's Word. And so I've titled today's message, God's Wonderful Words. God's Wonderful Words. And the first three verses give us the things that bring delight to us about God's Word. And then, as we get into the second section, we see how the wonder of God's Word drives us to depend upon the God of the Word. There are things that the psalmist asks for God to give to him. And when we have come to depend on him and understood the wonder of God's Word, it should work in our hearts a desire, a depth of desire for the lost for those that don't recognize and acknowledge God's Word. So, delight in God's Word, verses 129 through 131, 
Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. And since we've just read it together, I won't read it to you again in its entirety. We'll just move into that. But let's go to the Lord and ask him to give us wisdom as we do look at his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is wonderful. Lord, help us to treat it with the wonder and the awe that it deserves. As we've been pointed to the throne room and your holiness, help us to recognize you and your word for what they are and what they should be in our lives. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we look at your word and that we would understand the truths you have for us. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Your testimonies, he says, are wonderful. This word wonderful in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is translated wonderful here is only used 13 times in the entire Old Testament. One of those times is a time that we're quite familiar with in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we're told, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The scripture tells us repeatedly that Jesus is the Word. And here he says the word is wonderful. One writer said, actually, it might even be better translated marvelous. Whatever word makes it the biggest word you can make it, God's testimonies, they are wonderful. And so what is my response to God's wonderful word? He says, and you did it, and... That was really good, Aaron, to read that as a response because so many of these passages, so many of these statements are basically a call and response for us. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The logical response to God's wonderful words is that I'm going to be obedient to them. This morning I was reading something totally unrelated to, to this. I mean, I wasn't preparing. I just was having a devotional time and there was a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. She says, does it make sense to pray guidance about the future if we're not obeying in the thing that lies before us today? How many momentous events in Scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience. You can think of Gideon. Didn't seem like a real small act of obedience, but it was a small act of obedience. And many others. Noah, he built the ark. An act of obedience. That was a rather large act of obedience, right? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it. You will be shown what to do next. So God's words are wonderful 
And because of that, we should obey them. We should observe them. We should be as the servant that we were talked, we were challenged with last week. A servant that obeys no matter what the request or what the demand is, we need to be doing or obedient to God's word. The next verse says, the unfolding of your word gives light. This is another word picture. You unfold the newspaper and you see more and more of the newspaper the further you unfold it, right? I told Luke, I said, maybe if he wrote it today, he'd say the scrolling of your word gives light (laughs) as you get to another section and God opens up his word to you. But this word picture is a lot like that word lamp that we talked about a few weeks ago. The headlamp that only showed a few steps ahead. Just a little bit. The unfolding of your word gives light. It lightens the path just as much as we need for right now. We don't have to have all of it at once. We just need what we need for today or for tomorrow. So we see kind of the unfolding of your word helps us understand that the light comes. Sometimes it comes a lot, and sometimes it comes just a little at a time. But the word light gives us the idea of understanding or revelation. This is a progressive revelation to us. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples John 14, verse 15. I didn't put the marker in. The importance of obedience to the word. To be able to see more. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we see here that as the word of God opens up and it teaches us we can hear what God is trying to say and we can understand more. Another translation gives this unfolding of the word is the entrance of your word gives light. The entrance. When God's word enters you. Well, just think about creation. How did God's word bring light to the creation? Jesus, God said, let there be light and there was light. And throughout the first part of the book of Genesis there we see an unfolding of light that comes from the Word of God. John Gill in his uh, commentary said, As soon as a man enters upon reading the Scriptures, if he has any degree of understanding of the things in them, they immediately throw light into his mind. Or, however, as soon as... Ever the word has an entrance into the heart and through the spirit, power and grace of God makes its way and has a place there that being opened by the Lord for that purpose, light arises in darkness. He says the unfolding of your word gives light and he restates it by saying it gives understanding to the simple. That's an encouragement to me. There are times I'm I'm not as deep as some of these theologians and whatever that we read, and it says that the Word of God gives understanding even to the simple. The word simple is even used 
as a fool, a person that has very little understanding. But God's word is such that it can give understanding even to the simplest, even to the person, as uh, Luke was sharing, somebody said to him, well, I don't have the same gifts you have, but God says his word gives understanding to the simple. If we'll just allow the word of God to enter us, we can understand what God wants us to do. In Psalm 19, says a very similar thing. Um, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God wants us to be wise, but he wants us to be wise because we've allowed his word to enter us. So God's word, the unfolding of his word, gives light. And so as we see a progression here, recognizing God's word is wonderful, we, un we see it being unfolded and giving light. He says in the next verse, I opened my mouth wide and panted. I recognized that I was missing something and I needed more. Like when you're trying to get more breath. A person who has asthma recognizes that when they, they're gasping for breath, panting. Here he says, I opened my mouth wide and I panted. The scripture uses that picture uh, in many ways, but the translation of this word that's translated uh, pants is to inhale eagerly. It even includes covering and being angry, but to desire earnestly, to devour, to haste, to pant, to swallow up. God's word should be, we should desire God's word so much that we're drawing it in just as much as we can. He says, my, I opened my mouth wide and panted. Why? For I longed for your commandments. Uh, Psalm 42 verse 1 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Our desire for God is mirrored by our desire for His Word. As we recognize that we need God, we also recognize that we need His Word. This statement, I longed for your commandments. Again, a restatement of the first half. Uh, in Spurgeon's Treasury of David, he says, this longed means longed to know them, longed to obey them, longed to be conformed to their spirit, longed to teach them to others. The psalmist was a servant of God and his instructions, his industrious mind longed to receive orders. He was a learner in the school of grace and his eager spirit longed to be taught of the Lord. He longed, notice even that phrase, he was a servant of God and he longed to receive orders. The word of God gives us orders. We'll see that as we come into this next section. But the question to ask ourselves, is this the kind of delight I have in God's word? Do I recognize it as wonderful? 
Do I recognize it as giving me light? Do I pant for it? Do I long for it? And of course, as we have said repeatedly, our response to the word may not match up to what the psalmist is describing and probably does not match up to what the psalmist is describing, but that's how this becomes a prayer for us, is that we desire to be like our Lord Jesus, and this would be what he desires for us. This next section I believe the psalmist has now recognized the value of the word of God and he is now saying, I need you to make this happen for me. I am looking to you and I need you to do something for me. Look in verse 132. From 132 to 135, he's asking God to do certain things for him. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. This turn to me is also translated look at me. This whole section then helps us understand the importance of the priority of prayer in our lives. And we know in our devotional, the praying with Jesus this week, actually this morning, we're moving into the priorities of Jesus. How can we as a church reflect the priorities of Jesus, reestablishing Jesus' priority? And this one particular today's talked about the priority of prayer. I trust you got to read it this morning, but if you didn't, it says early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. You'd think if Jesus was the Son of God, he wouldn't need to pray, or at least he wouldn't need a specific prayer time because he'd be in such a constant state of prayer. You'd expect him to have a direct line to his heavenly Father, like broadband to heaven. At least you'd think Jesus could do a better job of tuning out the noise of the world. But surprisingly, Jesus seemed to need time with God just as much as we do. This is Paul Miller from A Praying Life. Then the devotional goes on to say, Jesus needed regular daily direct communication with his heavenly Father. So do we. He demonstrated and taught this kingdom priority throughout his ministry. Your church needs prayer like never before. Part of the reason you're, we are in a revitalization process is because somewhere along the journey, individual and congregational prayer became a low priority and or an overlooked practice. I'm suggested that prayer became your emergency evacuation procedure instead of your daily strength and sustenance. What steps you can take, what steps can you begin taking today in order to reestablish the priority of prayer in your own life, in your church's weekly schedule of activities, and in your church's gatherings. Here's what my best friend says. Pray like everything depends on God, because it does. And then work. Get to work as though everything depends on you. The last part most of us have mastered. You aren't afraid of hard work. The problem is praying. It's infrequent, powerless, and unfocused. Ask God to help you make a plan for how you are going to continue to pray faithfully after these 40 days are finished. 
And the prayer, he says, Dear God, I've neglected the moment-by-moment practice of prayer far too long in my own life. Please forgive me, and by your grace, move me toward you every day, causing my heart to long for fellowship and communication with you all through the day. And sadly, Lord, our church family has lost our devotion to prayer, and our prayers too often focus on the sick and dying, and not often enough on your kingdom agenda in our community. Please forgive and stir our hearts to seek you as though we're completely helpless apart from you, which we are. I ask this humbly in Jesus' name. These have been quite uh, meaningful to me and have really helped me in thinking through some of the things that I need as a leader and our church needs, and I trust that it it has been a benefit to you as well. We're on, we'll be on day 29 tomorrow, so if you hadn't picked one up and started, you can do that. Maybe we'll go through it a second time after we've gotten through it the first time. As we see the priority of prayer here in this passage, the psalmist prays, turn to me and be gracious to me. One of the uh, quaint sayings or whatever that uh, Spurgeon included in his uh treasury of David, in talking about this turn to me, look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, etc. Look upon me, stripped by thieves and by my virtues, and then wounded with sins, and be merciful to me, showing compassion on me, taking care of me in the end of the church universal, that I might not fall again among thieves or be harmed by wolves which howl about this foal, but dare not enter in. And he goes on with several other, look upon me, the publican standing afar off in thy temple, the church, and be merciful to me, not after the Pharisees' judgment, but as thou used to do to them that love thy name. And then he goes on uh, and talks about the sinful woman and the brother, the son, that uh, the jealous brother. But he says, turn to me, and then he says, be gracious to me. Just like the father was gracious to the prodigal son, we're asking God to be gracious to us. In verse 33, he says, Establish my footsteps in your word. Uh, The King James says, Order my steps in your word. Put my steps in that proper order. Psalm uh, 37 And verse 23. Write down the wrong reference. Oh, no. If I'd go to Psalm instead of Job, I'd be in good shape. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. What the psalmist is asking is, Lord, make me be that man whose steps are ordered after your way. Direct my steps. And then he goes on to say, uh, do not let iniquity have dominion over me. Don't let sin overtake me. Uh, Again, in Psalm 19, where he's talking about the Word of God as well, the psalmist asks God to... uh, not let sin have power over him. 
Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and shall be acquitted of great transgression. And the Apostle Paul gave us a very similar, a very similar concept in the book of Romans chapter 6. And he tells us, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin's not to have dominion over us. God doesn't intend for that. And the psalmist asks, Lord, keep iniquity away from me. Order my steps in your word. Establish my footsteps in your word. And then he goes on in the next verse and says, Redeem me from the oppression of man. That word redeem there is probably more like deliver, but it also reminds us of the fact that God has given, has redeemed us. Recently, uh, I read a devotion that focused on Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15, that basically says, uh, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but the one who hates being surety is secure. This is the picture of redemption. In essence, what Jesus did was He made a promise to pay my debt, even though I could not pay it. He, it would be like co-signing for someone and you knew that they couldn't pay the debt. So you were going to be on the hook for it. The reason he says you'll suffer if you're surety for a stranger is if you co-sign for a stranger, you will. Redemption is when he pays back. He pays off the, the debt, so therefore I'm no longer obligated for it. We even saw that concept in last week's passage in verse 122. Be surety for your servant for good. And not just what he did was, he co-signed for us. He prayed for us to be, uh, prayed that he would be surety for him as a servant. But then he made him a son. He made the the father would not accept him just as a servant. He made him, gave him sonship, just like God has given us sonship. And then in verse 135, of the end of 34, that I may keep your precepts. Redeem me so that I can keep your precepts. There's no way I can keep the precepts of God apart from him and his redemption. Make your face shine upon your servant. When you think of a face shining, uh, you've seen a parent who's very proud of a child. And the face shines on the child because they've done something to make them proud. Maybe they said a new word or they, you know, mastered potty training or whatever it was, but the face shined. He says, make your face shine upon me. Be pleased with me. And it's interesting in Numbers, the, uh, 
one of the places this phrase may have come from. Uh, the Lord uh, spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them. And so this is a blessing that Moses is teaching Aaron to proclaim upon the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So shall they invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, make your face shine upon me, just like in that blessing that the priests proclaim on us regularly. Make your face shine upon me. And he says, teach me your statutes. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus told us when he left that he was leaving us a teacher? So the prayer for being taught He says, but the Helper, verse John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Teach me your statutes. And we've been given a teacher. If we understand the wonder of God's word and we delight in it, when we recognize our need for God's help in our life, God's help to turn to us, to be gracious to us, to establish us, to protect us from sin, to redeem us, to make His face shine upon us and to teach us, what should that result in in our hearts? Verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. This idea of rivers of water or streams of water, uh, glancing through uh, Calvin's commentary in this little phrase, uh, that is a great profusion of tears. The Orientals are in general very copious weepers, and this strong hyperbole is still much employed among them to express the highest degree of lamenting grief. The psalmist hurt deeply because of the world's disdain for God's word. The question is, do we, do we hurt deeply because people don't obey God's word? We should desire, and he desires for them to keep or obey God's law. When I thought about that, he says, because they do not keep their law. Why don't they keep God's law? Why do you think people don't keep God's law? They don't keep God's law, maybe because they don't know. They're ignorant. Sometimes there are some people in our society that just simply don't know what God's law is, and so they don't keep it. But then there are those that don't know, I mean, that do know, but they just don't care. They're apathetic. People don't keep God's law because they don't care. Sometimes it's just plain old, plain old laziness. You have that problem sometimes? You don't do something just because I don't feel like it. Laziness. But then a lot of it boils down to rebellion. An unwillingness to do what God has said. 
But the psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. He desires for them to know God's wonderful words. He wants them to, he wants them to know that. There's a promise in chapter 126. Those who sow in tears shall weep, reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I think this needs to be something that we take to heart as we continue in outreach to our community. We need to recognize that not only do people need to hear the Word of God and that we desire for them to do the Word of God, but it, that it should break our hearts that they're not obeying the Word of God to the point that we weep. And, and I'll have to admit, this is not a place that I've been very often weeping because people won't obey God's Word. Although I have come to that place a few times in my life, uh, I'm praying that the Lord will help me understand that even more. But he says, my eyes shed streams of water. Even Jesus was an example to us in praying over, he prayed over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. When he came and he saw the city, he prayed and he cried over the city. When he came and he saw the unbelief at the tomb of Lazarus, it says Jesus wept. If Jesus wept, shouldn't I? That's where I see the psalmist taking us. When we know the Word of God, God's wonderful Word, God's wonderful Word that opens our eyes up and gives understanding, God's wonderful Word that we should pant after and long for, which will draw us to prayer to recognize that God is the one that has to give us the power to do just that. God wants to minister in us and through us. Warren Wiersbe concludes this section by saying, if our enjoyment of God's word and God's gracious blessings has truly reached our hearts, then we ought to have a burden for the lost and try to reach them for Christ. Do you delight in God's word? How is it, or how is that demonstrated in your life? Are you faithfully participating in the Bible reading plan or some other way that you are in the Word of God on a regular basis? Do you recognize, do you pant for, do you long for the, God, for the Word of God? Does your recognition of how great God's Word is drive you to your knees in prayer? Do you ask God to turn His face toward you, to be gracious to you, to direct you, to protect you from sin's power? for His redemption, both in the salvific way for salvation, but also His redemption of your thoughts, of your actions toward other people, His changing, for His pleasure and for His teaching. Of course, if you haven't come to know Jesus as your Savior, you would not be able to 
experience those things, but even if you have, hopefully God can, you can pray and ask God to give you that depth of desire. But a person who hasn't received that gift of salvation needs to start by recognizing a need for redemption, the fact that we're sinners and that Jesus took our place, paid our debt. He co-signed the note so that we wouldn't have to pay it off. But he does it as a free gift. We need to accept God's free gift of salvation. I'm praying that as we come to know our neighbors through the outreach that we're doing, that we will begin to weep over them as the psalmist does at the end of this section. The better we know people and the fact that they have not come to know God the way we possibly have should bring us to a point of sorrow and weeping. And so we see God's wonderful testimony. We see the prayer of the psalmist and we see the result of his eyes shedding streams of tears. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask, Lord, that you would take your word and impact our lives by your word. Help us to long for it. Lord, we ask that you would turn to us, that you would look upon us and be gracious to us, that you would establish our footsteps according to your word. You would not allow sin to have dominion over us. Lord, redeem us from the oppression of man, from the sinfulness of ourself, that we'll be able to keep your precepts. Lord, make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Teach us your statutes. Help us to see people the way you see them. And because they don't keep your law, help us to come to a desire for them and a willingness to weep for those for whom you died. Thank you for your word and for speaking to us through it. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand one last time and turn to him 157.
God gave his son to win his erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin oh love of God how rich and pure how It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains fall God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong redeeming grace of Adam's race the saints and How measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels.